Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Sean Cole, and I'm so thankful that you have chosen to listen to this podcast today. Also, we are doing our first YouTube video slash podcast. Uh, I've decided to do this to get a wider audience. Maybe you want to watch this or listen to this on YouTube as well as listen to my podcast that you can get off of iTunes. And so thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church here in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor of theology, church history, Old and New Testament at Colorado Christian University. Recently, I've been thinking about my journey into uh, the doctrines of grace or Calvinism or Reformed theology, and there's been this popular term called young, restless, and reformed. Well, I'm no longer young. I'll be 44 in a few months. Um, I'm not restless. I'm pretty settled in what I believe, uh, but I would consider myself uh, reformed. So I am a product of this movement that's really been around the past 15, 20 years. And so what I thought I'd do on this podcast, on this video, is really just trace my history in embracing the doctrines of grace and so how you can get to know me a little bit better and just kind of hear my story. So this is not going to be deeply theological. We're not going to do any exposition of scripture. I'm just going to kind of tell my story and tell you some watershed events that happened in my life as a way of encouragement and also if you're exploring uh, theology, if you're exploring the doctrines of grace, uh, maybe this will be a help to you. Um, a few years back, Mark Dever uh, of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, he came up with a list of the top 12 influences of the young, restless, and reformed movement. And he uh, did a lecture on that. It was posted on the Gospel Coalition. And um, it, it's very interesting that the things that he lists, and I want to just kind of talk about those. Um, number one on the list, he has Charles Spurgeon. Um, obviously, Spurgeon has had a great influence on my life as well especially his defense of Calvinism and all of grace and his sermons and just uh, the reading the scriptures of uh, the, the sermons of Spurgeon has been very helpful uh, to me. Uh, number two on the list, he puts Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the doctor. Uh, I've read his biography, a wonderful read. Um, I listen to his sermons that are now on the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. Um, I've done some book reviews on his books and seminary, um, have read his preachers and preaching many times, um, a great influence. And number three, he has the Banner of Truth Trust, uh, all those books on the Puritans, the Puritan paperback books that really delve into uh, especially the Puritan view of sanctification and growth in Christ. Uh, number four, he has Evangelism Explosion, D. James Kennedy out of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida and how really Evangelism Explosion was started by Reformed Presbyterians. And so the whole idea that Calvinism kills evangelism uh, can kind of be debunked with the um, onset of Evangelism Explosion. Number five, he talks about the inerrancy controversy, how the battle for the Bible was really spearheaded by a lot of Reformed uh, theologians like J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul and James Montgomery Boyce and others. Uh, number six, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, um, talks about how in the late 90s they gained traction with um, Reform University Fellowship, uh, Tim Keller's Redeemer Church in New York City, Ligon Duncan, 
um, First Presbyterian Jacksonville, Florida, just the influence in recent history of uh, the Presbyterian Church in America. J.I. Packer, number seven, uh, again, his book, Knowing God, I had to read that in seminary, and it was, he really introduced me more into the idea of sanctification. Two of his books really had an impact on me, and that would be Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, as well as, as Knowing God. So he, he definitely had a big input, impact on, on my life. Um, number eight, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. Um, I'd always known about John MacArthur and his ministry and uh, his commentaries, and um, R.C. Sproul definitely, probably um, more so than any other theologian, R.C. Sproul really helped me to clarify the doctrines of grace, especially his book, Chosen uh, by God. Uh, number nine, John Piper. We'll talk more about that later because obviously he was very instrumental. Um, Reformed rap, number 10. I'm not a big rap fan, um, so I know there's a basically a huge movement. Lecrae, Trip Lee, um, Humble Beast Records, all different types of things, propaganda. Um, I'm not into reform rap, but it's making a huge impact in a lot of circles. Um, and he has number 11, Parachurch Ministries, Acts 29, Together for the Gospel, Gospel Coalition, uh, Nine Marks, and definitely those have had. I've been to every Together for the Gospel conference all the way back in 1996 when it first started, when we were in the Galt House ballroom with maybe about 1,000 of us, maybe even 800 of us in there. In an exciting time, I, I was got to sit on the front row, and one of the exciting things about um, that was it was R.C. Spohr was preaching, and I was about three rows back, and, and in front of me were Ligon Duncan, Mark Dever, Al Mohler, John Piper, and John MacArthur. And I could see John MacArthur and John Piper feverishly taking notes at R.C. Sproul's sermon, and that was kind of a neat thing to see. Um, and then number 12, Mark Dever has the rise of secularism and the decline of Christian um, nominalism. So those are his, his list. And so really what I want to do is kind of piggyback on his list and kind of give you my journey into uh, the doctrines of grace. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of background. Um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church culture. I am still a Southern Baptist. And really growing up, especially in the 80s, uh, were my formative years, middle school, uh, elementary, high school, um, and the churches I was in, didn't focus a lot on theology. It was more practical messages about the Christian life and more uh, salvation messages to get saved. But I had never even heard the term Calvinism growing up. Um, I knew the term once saved, always saved. I knew what it meant to have eternal security, that you couldn't lose your salvation. But this whole idea of, of Calvinism and predestination and, and all the, the tulip, I had, I had no concept. Um, probably the theology that I grew up in would be leaning more um, traditional Southern Baptist, probably uh, really Arminian in the sense of the foreknowledge view, um, more Arminian in the sense of, of, yeah, total depravity, but not total inability, definitely not regeneration preceding faith, definitely universal atonement. Um, but the one thing that we did get hammered home growing up was once saved, always saved, the way it was termed, um, eternal security. It wasn't really until I was in later high school years, probably a senior in high school, that I began to study theology on my own. And the reason I did that was because 
uh, we had Mormon neighbors that lived right next door, and I was good friends with them. Um, the high school that I was at had a lot of Mormons, and, and really growing up in the public school system um, as an evangelical Christian, a Southern Baptist, um, I had a lot more in common with my Mormon friends when it came to um, morality than I did other friends. And so I really got close to my Mormon friends, and I really wanted to know uh, what were the differences in what we believed? Because I knew Mormonism was a cult, but I did not know all the ins and outs of what uh, the Mormon faith really believed. And so I began looking at the Baptist faith and message and seeing what our church believed. And back then it was the 1963 version. And obviously Herschel Hobbes was instrumental. He was the chairman of the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message Committee. And it was Herschel Hobbes's commentaries and really theology that, that took Southern Baptists, I believe, away from Reformed theology to embrace more of an Arminian theology. And so it was in his chapter um, that I came across the doctrine of election in the Baptist faith and message where I was first struggling with this whole idea of predestination and free will. And so that was in the late 80s. I graduated from high school in 1990. Uh, then got involved in a campus ministry, the Baptist Student Union, um, as I went to the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. And it was there that we had Air Force Academy cadets. And, and the first time I really rubbed shoulders with non-Southern Baptists. And so um, some, some Presbyterians were involved in that. And I remember going to a restaurant one night after um, Bible study uh, with a group of, of guys, and we were talking and um, started talking about the issue of predestination, and, and he was a Calvinist. It was the very first time. He's like, yeah, I'm a Calvinist, and I believe um, that God predestines some to heaven and others he passes over. And, and to me at that time, in like 1991, uh, that was shocking to hear that God didn't love everybody, that God chose a sum for heaven and not, and, and what what is this Calvinism? And I didn't even call it Calvinism. It, to me, it was just the ugly word predestination. I don't believe in predestination. Uh, nowadays, I, I, I challenge people when they say, I don't believe in predestination. What I tell them is, you've got to believe in predestination because the word is a biblical word, and it's in the Bible. It's in Romans chapter 8. It's in, first, it's in Ephesians chapter 1. It's in 1 Thessalonians. Um, the question is not, do I believe in predestination, the question is, what, what view of predestination do I hold to? What's the basis? What's the foundation for God predestining? Is it unconditional, the Calvinistic view, or is it conditional, uh, the Arminian view, or is it corporate, the traditional Southern Baptist view? So you've got to believe in predestination. It's really just what view you hold to. And so it was in college that I began to struggle with this idea that God predestined some and others he passes over, and, and it just did not sit well with me. And I remember my best friend at the time, um, he was staunchly, staunchly um, Arminian, anti-Calvinistic. Um, it just basically made his blood boil. I remember when we were at this restaurant talking about this issue, um, he was just getting red in his face, and he just couldn't believe, and he was just seething over the fact that um, this was a theology that people actually believed. And so he began to write, really, I would at this time call it a white paper. He began researching and studying and, and basically writing a defense of of really Arminianism, saying uh, that God does not unconditionally predestine those to salvation. And so he wanted me to join in the um, the fun of that, and so I kind of jumped in. And he did most of the research, but basically together we wrote 
this document, we never published it, we never shared it with each other, but it was just really an exercise for us to determine where we stood on the issue. And I just remember through that process, I was vehemently against Calvinism, vehemently against the idea that God would sovereignly have the right to choose whom he would want to choose, because obviously God had to love everybody. God owes people grace. Um, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not born dead in transgressions. I'm not totally unable. Um, why in the world would Jesus not just die on the cross for his elect? Obviously, it's for the whole world. Um, and yeah, the Holy Spirit has a role in our salvation, but he doesn't um, drag us kicking and screaming into heaven against our will. Uh, all the caricatures that you hear against um, Calvinism. Um, and then it was in really, as I struggled in college and then um, in the mid-90s, kind of began to, to, to really um, try to understand it more deeply. Um, I read Norm Geisler's book, Chosen But Free, and, and really I embraced that. I said, oh, this is finally it. Um, I came to grips with the fact that the word predestined showed up in the Bible and that you had to deal with it as a concept, as a, as a theological truth. And it seemed to me that Norm Geisler was able to um, put it in terms that I, I embraced. And so um, I wholeheartedly embraced Norm Geisler's Chosen But Free. I said, hey, this is a balance. He, he called himself a modified Calvinist. And, you know, at the time, growing up Southern Baptist, I never wanted to be called an Arminian um, because obviously Arminians believe you can't lose your salvation. But I didn't dare want to be called a Calvinist because, you know, those Calvinists, they, they believe that God damns babies to hell and that um, the Chosen Frozen and all this kind of stuff. You don't want to be a Calvinist. So um, I like the idea of, of his middle ground. In about 1998, I was introduced to John Piper and um, never really heard him preach, but um, began reading some of his books. And, and this was a whole new paradigm shift for me, reading Desiring God, uh, The Pleasures of God, um, reading some of his, his early works. And I just, this was a whole new paradigm shift, this whole idea that God exists for his glory alone that the universe doesn't center around me and my free will, but that God is sovereign and God is glorious and God gets the greatest pleasure when he's glorified and, and we're most satisfied in him when he's most glorified in us and, and all the John Piperisms that you that you probably know about. And, and, and I began to be confronted with that and saying, now wait a minute, this is a view of God I've never really been exposed to. I've never really had a rich, robust theology of the sovereignty of God. This is something new. This is something... Um, exciting. This is something different. And it was about that time that I came on staff as a youth pastor in Colorado Springs. And God had called me to the ministry. And I, and I started seminary in 2000 um, at the Rocky Mountain campus of Golden Gate in Denver, Colorado. And it was really in seminary that the struggle hit full force um, it was really a vortex of three things coming together. Uh, one of my first classes was systematic theology. And um, we had to read Millard Erickson's book, Christian Theology, which um, probably not, it's a good systematic theology. I would probably lean more heavily on Wayne Grudem's systematic theology now. But really it exposed me to Calvinism in, in, in a theological sense. Not just the caricatures, not just the straw men, but really what it meant and as we struggled with these things in systematic theology my my mind and then reading john piper started becoming a conflict within me i started 
really wrestling with these truths. And then um, James White, Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries, he was our apologetics professor. And so, you know, he was teaching on how to defend against Mormonism and Roman Catholicism and Jehovah's Witness. And then he mentioned his book, The Potter's Freedom. And he talked about how it was a defense of Calvinism. I thought, hmm, I have a Calvinistic professor here. I'm going to try to trip him up and ask him some hard questions. And you know with Dr. James White, when you try to trip him up, it's really difficult. And so um, I tried to play devil's advocate and ask a lot of questions to see if I could rattle him as this upstart um, anti-Calvinist in seminary. And, and basically said, just read my book, Potter's Freedom. Um, I'm, I'm here as a, as a seminary professor. I don't want to present an agenda. I'm not here to present Calvinism as an agenda. Uh, this is an apologetics class, but you read my book. So I read The Potter's Freedom. And it's interesting because I read it three different times and I used different color ink and I went interacted with Dr. James White in his book, The Potter's Freedom. And the first time I read it, objection after objection, I was, I was writing the objections next to everything he said um, and just really kind of tearing apart his argumentation um, and, and I read it, and I'm like, this is bothering me because I'm trying to refute him, and he's laying forth scripture after scripture after argument after scripture. He's going through exegetically and dealing with all of the objections I had, and I, and I found myself exposed, and I did not like that. And then also at this time is when I'm learning Greek. So you've got systematic theology, you've got James White's The Potter's Freedom, and you've got learning the Greek text, the Greek language coming into play. And I start learning, you know, the participles and present active imperatives and all the different, you know, Greek tenses and, and, and started looking at John 6 and started looking at Ephesians 1 and said, okay, these are the passages that Calvinists go to? What do they really say? Let me just be honest with the text. And so I went with the Greek language and, and it just became so clear to me. And so I went back and said, you know what, I'm going to read James White's book again. And this time I'm going to read it with an open mind. I've, I've been through systematic theology. I've been exposed to it. I've been learning some Greek. Let me go back and read his book. And as I read it, I realized that those earlier arguments that I had had written now I was saying, you know what, those objections have been answered. I don't believe that anymore. Uh, those were straw men that I was, was leveling against um, Calvinism. Those were ad hominems. Those were, I didn't understand the issues. And really, it was from a lack of understanding. I did not understand um, the Bible. And it was so um, frustrating to me because all these years I thought, you know, I prided myself, even in high school, you know, you're, you're strong in theology, you know your Bible, you've studied the Baptist faith and message, you're the son of a pastor, you're the leader of your youth group, um, you've gone on mission trips, you're solid theologically, and I realized how much really of the Bible I did not know. And that frustrated me because in my pride I thought I knew it. And there was this watershed moment, I was a a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, and my office was kind of down in the basement. I was down by the youth room. Okay, so all the all the offices, you know, for the the senior pastor and the music minister and the secretaries, they were all upstairs. But I was downstairs in really an old classroom, um, kind of holed in there next to the youth room. And um, I'm reading uh, my Bible, and I'm reading John six, and I'm coming across these passages. I'm reading Ephesians one. I'm praying, and and, and literally. I have a moment where I'm on my knees in my office on the floor weeping. And I'm weeping out of two reasons. I'm weeping out of anger that I'd never seen this before in the scriptures all these years. But they were also tears of joy 
that God had saved me when he had no right to. That I was totally unable, I was totally depraved, I was spiritually dead. And it wasn't my free will that saved me, but it was God and his sovereign grace that reached down and took out my heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh to give me salvation. And so there were tears of joy, tears of anger, tears of frustration, really tears of surrender. Because I got really mad. I said, Sean, you're, you, you have become what you just 10 years earlier detested and hated and vehemently stood opposed to. You've become a Calvinist. How are you going to deal with this? What, 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 how is this going to play out in your ministry? How is this going to play out in the way that you view the world, the way you teach the Bible? And so I was just conflicted. I was joyful. I was conflicted. I was angry. I, it, was, it was just... I was a mess, really weeping on the floor, and I had to gather myself and um, spend a couple more hours in prayer. Then I went home to my wife. Um, we lived in a parsonage right next to the church, and um, at that time, um, she worked at, at family Christian stores, and so she got to do a lot of, um, you know, in-store type of um you know, when Christian artists would come and, and she got to, they got to come and sign books and sign um, records and albums and CDs and things like that. And um, I remember this was when Cademan's Call was kind of just starting out popular, uh, their album 40 Acres with the song Thankful. And um, she had the Cademan's Call t-shirt and she just really loved their sound, the, the sound of the group, the, their singing, their, just the, the, the musical style. And I remember you know, her listening to Thankful, and I get so mad at that song. I'm like, why in the world? That's the most Calvinistic song I've ever heard. I'm thankful that I'm incapable of doing any good on my own, and we're all stillborn and dead in our transgressions. And I'm like, this is like flaunting Calvinism like, you know, way out there. Um, and so I, I went home to her and I said, you know, Don, uh, you've been listening to Cademan's Call, thankful. Uh, you know, I'm in seminary and I've been studying the Greek language and I've been reading these books and I've been wrestling with the Lord. And, she's, and I said, I have come to the point where I think all these years I've been wrong on my view of God and my view of myself. And I think I've become a Calvinist. And, and it really bothers me because... Why? why? Why is this happening now? Why, why, am, why is my whole world being shattered? And here's what she said to me. She said, Sean, if this is the true word of God that he's revealed to you in his scripture, you have no choice but to submit to it. And it, to me, those words were like an ocean of, um, of, of release. It was just this burden lifted off of me. It was like, yes, that's the answer. This is God's word. God has revealed it. I've put God in the box, I've misunderstood it, and I have no choice but to submit to this God, the God of Scripture. And from that moment on, I became a devourer of everything Calvinistic. And, you know, you, you get in that cage stage where your eyes have been opened, you feel like you've been born again, and so you begin to read everything there is, and you go on the Internet, and you search articles, and you go look at all these different things. And, and, and so I really you know, embraced the Founders Movement within the Southern Baptist Convention and got all the books from Founders Press and went back and listened to all the old sermons from the Founders Ministry because here were Southern Baptists, my tribe, that, were, that had always you know, held these beliefs way back in the late 70s, and so it wasn't new to them, so I went back to that. Um, read Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, just laid it out very clearly what that was. 
Um, another important book was John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ because Limited Atonement was the last um, of the five points that I really came to embrace. It, it was one of those hard ones because you grew up thinking, you know, of course Jesus died for the whole world. Of course it's a universal atonement. And I didn't understand the Hebrew book of Hebrews, the high priestly nature of Christ's efficacious sacrifice. And so that was a laborious book to get through, but that really opened my eyes to the doctrine of the atonement. Michael Horton's Putting Amazing Back into Grace was also a watershed book for me. And... Um, what really kind of brought it to a head was I remember it was my last night in seminary. I, you know, it was my last class, my last night, the very last class that I had as, a, as an MDiv student at the Rocky Mountain camp, campus. And my class was uh, Principles and Approaches to Teaching the Bible. And for the final project, students had to give a 20-minute Bible lesson on a topic or a text of their choosing. And this student's presentation just really saddened me because basically here's what he said. He was concerned that when he did evangelism, he was bothered that some people responded to Jesus and some people didn't. He didn't know. And he talked about how he tried to witness to his coworker and his coworker uh, wouldn't listen to him. And he was struggling with failure, thinking that you know, maybe I wasn't given enough information, but maybe I wasn't convincing enough. Maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe I did something wrong. And then he said he providentially pulled out Max Lucado's book, He Chose Nails. And he took great comfort in the chapter that he called Power of Choice. Now, I've never read he chose nails, but I guess there's a there's a chapter in that book called The Power of Choice. And really, um, he went on to explain how he took great solace in the fact that God's given us choice. We have the power of choice. A thief on the cross had the power of choice. But Judas was different than Peter um, because Peter used his power of choice. Um, Judas rejected Jesus because he used his power of choice. Uh, the parable of the sowers is basically the first three Soils used their power of choice to reject the gospel, while the, th the fourth soil used their power of choice to accept Jesus. Um, he went on to say, I'm so thankful God's given me the power of choice because everything's about the power of choice. If God really loved us, he has to give us the power of choice and love isn't forced. And so um, I'm so glad that when I go out there and witness, um, all I can do is pray that people will use their power of choice to come to Christ. Everything was about the power of choice. And it, it really saddened me, and I, I just realized, you know, I've gone through this journey, and here I am at the end of my seminary career, and yet this new student that's coming in that's in my class has this view, and I was just saddened by that. Another thing that really um, impacted my belief system is, is about my son. Um, I've shared this on, on previous podcasts, but um, my son, Zachary, has a rare chromosome disorder. Uh, there's only about three or four known cases of what he has in the world. Um, it makes him severely autistic. It makes him developmentally delayed. Uh, he's nonverbal. Um, he's now 15 years old. Um, but I struggled with that because I, I thought to myself, you know what? If libertarian free will is true, then my son has no chance because he can't exercise his free will to ever accept Jesus. He doesn't have the mental capacity to quote-unquote make a decision for Jesus in free will. So then I ask the question, well, how is he going to be saved? Because 
if, he, if we have inherited original sin from Adam and there's no baby born innocent, then he has original sin and he's accountable for that sin. And so if he were to die in sin, where would he go? And I realize that really the Reformed view has the answer to that about children dying in infancy, children dying in stillborn children, aborted babies, mentally incapable people. Um, how, how does that all work out? And I, and I believe the Calvinistic view has an answer to that. And so I thought about, you know, what if I had a hypothetical conversation with an Arminian on the destiny of my son? It might go something like this. Um, I, I would say, you know, to my Arminian friend, you know, I really believe my son, Zachary, will be saved by God's grace. And um, the Armenian would say, yeah, I can understand that he would be saved. Obviously, he can't use his free will. Um, God will save him because there's a special place in heaven for children with disabilities. There's a special place in heaven for aborted babies. God shows a special love for those types of situations. And I would say, well, according to your theology of free will, my son couldn't be saved because he can't choose. He lacks the ability to choose. He can't accept Christ for salvation because he just he doesn't have the capacity to do that. Well, the Arminian will say, well, you know that you don't need to worry about that. God, God will save him because God loves him and God has a special place in heaven for for people like that. And I would say, well, what's your basis for that? Well, God shows a special love to unborn children. He shows a special love to mentally incapable. God overcomes that original sin. God, God has special love for those types of situations. And I say to my Arminian friend, man, you sound like you're becoming a Calvinist. Because all of a sudden you're saying that God makes a discrimination in his love. God has a special love. God has an electing love. God, God is showing a special love to one group of people that he's not showing to others. And so I didn't think that was part of your theology. And my Arminian friend would say, oh, no, I, I, don't, don't get me wrong. I could, I could never be a Calvinist. And I would say, well, you're left with a problem. Because you've just granted God the option of showing a particular love to a class of people. Unborn babies, aborted babies, stillborn infants, mentally incapable, which is the basis of election. Or you've set up two systems of salvation for people. Mentally capable, and those that are alive now are saved by using their free will, while unborn babies and mentally incapables are saved by grace. So which one is it? And so I read a really helpful book by a man named Ronald Nash. It's called When a Baby Dies. It's a very helpful book, especially if you're a, um, a, a couple who have lost a baby either through um, miscarriage, stillborn baby, your baby's died maybe of SIDS in infancy, um, it's called When a Baby Dies, and it come, obviously comes from a Calvinistic perspective. But let me just give you a quote of what he says from that. He says, Arminians believe that Christ's atonement produced only the possibility of salvation. This possibility can be turned into actual salvation only when humans use their free will to repent and believe. But now the very serious problem of infant salvation enters the, the scene. The Arminian view that has just been explained has to be altered to meet the needs of infants who die before they're able to do what adults can supposedly do. Infants cannot be saved in a way that satisfies Arminian theology. 
because they lack the mental, moral, and physical ability to meet the conditions of Arminian salvation. Since Arminians reject God's unconditional election as a necessary condition of salvation, and since infants are incapable of understanding the gospel and responding to it in an act of free will, how can an infant be saved? And that was the question I struggled with. Obviously, my son is, is special needs. How is he going to be saved if he can't use his free will? Um, and how, how, are we going to, how are we going to um, come to grips with original sin, original guilt, d- uh, death and sin inherited from Adam? How does God overcome that? Um, and this is what Nash continues to say. He says this again. This seems to leave Arminians with only one other option, namely to believe that the depravity of deceased infants and mentally incapable is dealt with exclusively as an act of God's grace. But this is the Calvinistic answer, not the Arminian one. As long as we think salvation depends on our doing something that only a rational adult can do, it should be obvious that infants who cannot perform those actions are beyond the reach of God's salvation. If humans must do some act that only mature, rational persons can perform in order to become the beneficiary of God's redemption, it is clear that no infant can be saved. But if we assume that salvation results from God's activity and that humans are the recipients of God's gracious acts, we can see how infants, not only adults, can be recipients of that grace. You see, here's the way I look at it. I believe all people have inherited guilt and sin from Adam. We're spiritually dead. We're incapable of coming to Christ on our own. And so God has to regenerate us first to liberate that enslaved will. And the first gifts he gives us in regeneration are repentance and faith. So regeneration comes before repentance and faith. It's like in natural childbirth. Um, another person that's really influenced me is Artaxerdia. Um, he's the pastor of Trinity Church in Portland, Oregon, um, spirit-empowered preaching. Uh, we've had him in our church to preach. Um, I've had him at our state convention in Colorado to preach. We've kept in touch over the years. Um, he's kind of my, if I listen to one podcast preacher, I want to listen to Art Azurdia because he's had such a great impact on me. And this is something he, when he came out and he was helping me teach a Sunday school class and we were explaining this, and he had the greatest illustration. He said this, in natural childbirth, just in the giving birth of a child, and he was talking to the students. He said, did you somehow, by your will or by your effort, cause yourself to be born in your mother's womb and say, hey, mom, you know, push me out? Or was it a miracle of birth that is a miracle, and then the first thing you did once you were born was you cried? In other words, did you cry to be born, or did you cry as a result of being born? And everybody answered, oh, obviously you cried as a result of being born. He said, that's the same thing in the spiritual world. In regeneration, you are born again by God, and the first thing you do is you cry out to him in repentance and faith because he's given you that gift in regeneration. Now back to the situation with my son, Zachary. Here's what I believe. He has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit on account of the cross of Christ, but he just hasn't been able to exercise repentance and faith. If repentance and faith come first and then you're regenerated, then he has no choice to ever be regenerated because he can't use his free will to bring about the new birth. But if he's regenerated first and he just hasn't been able to express repentance and faith in the way that normal people are, then we believe he's saved because regeneration precedes faith. 
And so that's really helped me. Probably the biggest resource that um, really helped me was monergism.com. Um, most Calvinists know that monergism is the awesome resource for everything Calvinistic. Um, and I go there a lot to still get information. And as I've grown over the years, I don't read as much on these issues uh, because really back when I first became a Calvinist, I just devoured it. But I still, you know, as I do systematic Bible study and preaching week by week and teaching week by week, um, it's, it's, it's unmistakable that these truths are real and they're the only consistent reading of the scriptures. And I have to say it, it hasn't come without its problems um, in our church. Let me just give you the background of, of me coming to Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, when I met with the search committee over the phone, the first time that, that, that I had contact with Emmanuel Baptist Church, the search committee, we were an elder-led church, so it was all the, the six elders, and then I think it was like four or five lay people, so there were like ten people on this conference call. They grill you for an hour, an hour and a half, ask you all the questions, and then finally they say, do you have any questions for us? And this is the question that I asked them. I said, do you have a problem with your next pastor being a five-point Calvinist? I just laid it on the table. Because I figured if they said no, then you know maybe there would be an issue there. Um, and they all said, no, we have no problem with that whatsoever. Uh, there was one person on the committee, and I'm not sure why he was on the committee, that was really an Arminian. Not just a, a Southern Baptist, but really believed you could lose your salvation. And I guess he had a problem with my Calvinism. So the chairman of the committee called me and said, hey, we, we want to meet with you again because... We have one guy on the committee that's really concerned about your Calvinism. Can you explain it in more detail? So I went out there on a special trip again, and just myself this time, and I sat before the committee and the elders and, and laid out my Calvinism and said, listen, um, I called myself a compassionate Calvinist. I said, listen, I believe in evangelism. I believe in missions. I believe in praying for lost people. If I'm your pastor, we're going to embrace world missions. We're going to continue to give the cooperative program. We're going to do evangelism. That doesn't have any bearing on and what I believe about, about Calvinism. I believe you can be a Calvinist and be evangelistic. And so they had no problem with that. So I came into the church with my cards on the table being up front that I was a Calvinist. And I said, my Calvinism will come out in my preaching and in my teaching. So for the first, oh, I'd probably say seven years of my ministry here, um, I never used the C word. I never taught tulip from the pulpit. Um, I occasionally on some Wednesday night classes, we deal with this. Um, in some discipling situations, we would deal with it. But I never on a Sunday morning ever dealt with tulip per se. But then over time, people kept coming to me saying, hey, we want to know the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. Can you teach on tulip? Can you do this? And I said, well, here's the deal. I'm not going to teach this on a Sunday morning because uh, Sunday morning is really, you know, people really don't have a choice. They, they, they need to come to Sunday morning, and I don't want Sunday morning to be an agenda where all they hear is tulip. So let me do it on a Wednesday night where it's voluntary. And so we'll record it. You can actually go up on YouTube and, and get those videos um, that I did. Um, and let me teach it there. Well, we had a couple of families that once they watched the videos and heard them and heard the teaching were concerned and said, hey, we didn't know this about you. We didn't know this about Emmanuel. What's the deal? And so we've lost maybe three or four families over the past couple of years over the issue of Calvinism. And we as elders have met with them and we've listened to their concerns. And um, I did some digging and found out going all the way back to the 80s 
from every pastor that's been uh, preceded me in Emmanuel, going all the way back to 80, says all have all been Calvinistic. And I talked to some senior adults that were discipled, and they said, oh yeah, we've, we've always been Calvinistic in our theology. And so it wasn't anything new. And basically the issue was, I don't think the former pastors wore it on their sleeves as much as I do, and I, I don't think their preaching was as ex expositional as I was. I think they were more topical in their preaching, so it didn't come out as much. And so here's what I've, and I'm the longest tenured pastor in Emmanuel's history. I've been here over 10 years. And so I told these families, listen, here's the deal. When you sit under my teaching for longer than 10 years and you sit under expository preaching for, for 10 years, you're going to get the full range of God's word and what I have to say on this issue. Um, because some of these people say, well, our former pastors didn't, didn't preach this. Well, they may have only been there for three years, and they may have only preached topical sermons, and, and that may have been their theology. And so, yeah, we've lost some people over the years, but we've also gained a lot of people. And they don't come to our church simply because it's Calvinistic. They come to our church because it's biblical. Um, we, we exposit the Bible on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, and youth group, our youth pastor, our children's ministry, um, our growth groups. We have the highest view of the authority of the Bible. And when you do expositional teaching and preaching, and you're consistent with your theology, uh, you, you really just expose people to these truths that are there inherent in the text. And so, you know, this has been more of my journey into the young, restless reform movement, Calvinism, neo-Calvinism, reform theology, whatever you want to call it. And again, this this is more of an encouragement for you if you're if you just want to get to know me better about what my story is. Um, if you're struggling with these same truths, I'd love for you to um, to contact me about that. One of the things that you can help me do um, to to basically get more exposure for understanding Christianity is on iTunes. If you would be so kind as to go uh, either give a give a ranking or give some comments, because the more comments and rankings that it gets on iTunes, the, the higher it's, it's raked in iTunes in their, in their analytics. Also here on YouTube as well. Um, and I don't do this for money. I've never asked for a dime. This is just part of the ministry that I do as pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. My church has given me the freedom to have a, a reach that goes beyond just Emmanuel Baptist Church and wants me to have an impact um, using social media, using different types of media to, um, just to, to teach the gospel and preach the Bible so that people can truly understand Christianity. So if you have any questions about this podcast or this video, you can email me. My email is sean, S-E-A-N, at ebc-online.org. Um, my personal website is seancole.net. There you've got my Facebook link. You've got my Twitter link. You've also got my email. Um, and maybe if you send me an email, I can interact with those emails on a future podcast and maybe address that to, to benefit others. And so we really just want to be a help uh, not a hindrance. We want to do things with gentleness and kindness. Many of you have watched the joint or listened to the joint things I've done with Leighton Flowers, um, who is a non-Calvinist traditional Southern Baptist, and, and I totally disagree with a lot of his views and a lot of his conclusions, but we've done things together as a way to model uh, that the brothers in Christ can disagree in cordial ways. And so thank you for watching this video on YouTube. Or if you're listening to this on the podcast, again, this is the first time we've kind of done a joint thing like this. Uh, hopefully it works. And so God bless you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And uh, would you just be blessed in the Lord. And we pray this. We pray this in Jesus' name. I wasn't even praying. Uh, we could pray, but uh, I guess this is my way of saying, saying goodbye. That's what happens when you talk for an hour about um, things. Your, your mind kind of gets a little confused. So. 
Um, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole.